Well, if you'd like to join us Wednesday night, we'll be back in Second Samuel, examining chapter 3 of that wonderful book. We've had a couple of tough chapters to start off with. The subject matter was dark and ugly, and uh, we're going to be moving forward a bit, if you will, into Second Samuel 3 and see some of the wonderful things God did through King David. Aren't you glad that God uses people who have had failures in their lives? Amen. Well, this morning, here we go. Let's look at our PowerPoint verse. Open your Bibles to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. We'll look at verses 17 through 20 specifically and in detail. Now, I'll remind you that throughout the course of the past 10 months, we have talked about the various meanings of our word for the year, our word being blessed or blessed, and it carries with it great implications both for the church and the individual saint. Now, the 35 verses that make up our psalm this morning, we're obviously not going to uh, revisit them as we did in our study of the psalms, are filled with historic references and also prophetic inferences looking forward to Christ, our Savior and Deliverer. There's a portion that Paul even quotes in the New Testament that we'll make mention of. Now, historically, Psalm 68 has its roots back in the book of Judges, a time where there was no king in Israel, where Judges 21-25 says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I hope that has a familiar ring to our day today, because that's exactly what's happening in our world. It will point us back to the time of Deborah, when God used her mightily to bring about great victories for his people, and even take us back all the way to the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. Now, the context of Psalm 68 is David was writing a victory chant, so to speak, or a song of celebration. He was celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the people of God. And it's not just a psalm, it's also a song that was sung as the Ark re-entered the city from its return from captivity by the Philistines. Now, for you Bible students, it's also the very song that was being sung in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that caused David's wife, Michael, to despise him as he danced before the Lord. Now, the psalm was written about a time of victory. It was written about a time to arise and go, a time to move forward, a time to press on in a new season of the power and the blessings of God. Now, let me take us back to January and remind us of our theme verse for the year for 2019 from Revelation 22:14, which says, what's the first word? Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. The city obviously being the new Jerusalem. Aren't you excited about being in the new Jerusalem someday? Now, we noted in our initial study in January that our word for the year has a triad of duets associated with it, in that it is pronounced two different ways, blessed and blessed. We've read it in two different languages, obviously Hebrew and Greek, two of the three languages the Bible is written in, Aramaic being the third in portions of Daniel. And we're going to find two different words in each of the two languages translated into blessed or blessed. Now, we have found the English word blessed 
translated from the Hebrew word Baruch, and it is the word that we'll encounter in our text and PowerPoint verse today. And it means to kneel in adoration. It means to bless the Lord. And we'll also find in the Hebrew the word eris translated in to blessed, and that means happiness. And these two parallel, obviously, the Greek words used in the New Testament, uh, the first being makarios, which is the word found in our theme verse for 2019. And it means happy or oh, how happy. It is the word also used in the Beatitudes and eulogitos, which is adoration or to be praised. Again, paralleling the Old Testament. God is worthy of our praise. He is due our adoration. Amen. Now, Proverbs 10, 22, we're told the blessings of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Listen, I was thinking this morning that it's a good time for a song of victory. <laughs> I'm back. So the audience participation is part of the morning process. Now, listen, I think it's a good time for a reminder that even with all that is going on in the world, even in the midst of the forces of darkness that are raging around us, they will not prevail. I think it's a good time to remember that our God rides the clouds, that he measures the universe with the span of his hand. I think it's a good time to remember that our God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. And I think it's a good time to remember that our God is able. And within his blessings are our no Sorrows, And therefore, since we as new creations are in Christ Jesus, this reminds us of our title in that in Christ we enjoy, and here's our title, benefits and blessings, obviously in association with knowing God. Benefits and blessings is our title today. And as David writes this psalm, he's doing so from the perspective of the king of Israel. He is giving God thanks for his protection, for victories over their enemies, and he includes God's foretold and final victory over man's greatest enemy, which is death, which was accomplished by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, as God's children, Our lives are filled with the benefits and blessings of knowing God. Now, that doesn't mean that life is pain-free. Are you here this morning? That doesn't mean that life is pain-free. It doesn't mean that life is sorrow-free. It simply means that the pains and sorrows of life are faced with divine power and hope that are exclusive to you and I as born-again Christians. Listen, there's no greater asset in this life than knowing God. And knowing Him is... A blessing with benefits beyond measure, as we'll see this morning. And I think it's time for some reminders for you and I in this day that we live in that is like the time of the judges, where people are doing what is right in their own eyes. And today, and like in our psalm from the past, our enemies seemingly for the moment gain an upper hand, at least it appears on the surface. But let's also remember that like this psalm, we have victory in Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Are you ready this morning? Stand and read with me, please. Psalm chapter 68, verses 17 through 20, as we examine a few of the benefits and blessings of knowing God. Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. 
The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. And Lord, we thank you that you are in absolute and sovereign control over all things. We thank you, Lord, that even as we live in such a time as this, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Weapons formed against us will not prosper, and we can do all things through Christ who will strengthen us. And Lord, remind us this day of the benefits of bless and blessings of knowing you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our observations this morning will be our usual three, and the first will come from our opening verse, that being 17, where David illustrates the sovereign authority and power of God by listing a number of chariots that are at the Lord's disposal for battle. Now, this is a common practice in Scripture to use an illustration that would be understandable by culture. The point being is not the number, the 20,000 or thousands of thousands. The point is this. God is a formidable force of might and power. He is all-powerful. And the beneficiaries of this power are the people of God. And if we back up a handful of verses, we'll remember what David wrote of in verses 7 through 10 of the same chapter. David said, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. And listen, think about what David is saying here. Think about what he is drawing our minds to as it applies to our own lives as the people of God. Our God makes a way in the wilderness. Amen. Our God makes a way in the wilderness. He shakes the earth by his mere presence. He commands the skies to open and close at will. He provides from his own goodness when all human resources run dry. God is not hindered by circumstances. He is not intimidated by opposing forces. He is not limited in his majestic power. He is not bound by the unrighteous laws of men. He is not helpless in situations that seem hopeless. His hand is not stifled by disease or illness. He is not fighting to maintain his position. His position is one of absolute authority and power. He cannot be overthrown, nor can he be disregarded. And listen this morning. Through Jesus, we're his inheritance. We are his inheritance. Isaiah 51, 10 to 16 reminds us, Are you not the one who dried up the sea? Speaking of the Red Sea event. The waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over. So the ransomed, ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? 
and of the Son of Man, who will be made like grass, and you forget the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loose, that he should not die in a pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts, or Lord of armies, is his name. I put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. We are the people of God. Amen? Now, there's a lot going on in our nation and world today that is not good. But let me remind you that not good is not new. Things went south right away with the two first recorded sons in the scripture. I think it always worthwhile to point out that from the first sin, which was disobeying the word of God, the second sin was murder. And this tells us that man began his decline instantaneously when he sought to disparage and discourage and ignore the word of God. Eve was deceived, Adam consciously sinned, and the rest, as they say, was history. It was not good what happened to the descendants of Jacob in Egypt, but God delivered them. He led them in the wilderness. He gave them his law on Mount Sinai as it trembled before him. And listen, we too are the people of God through Christ Jesus. We are Abraham's seed through belief and faith. Now, yes, God allows things to progress further than we would like at times. Yes, he lets the enemy encroach upon us at times as he did with Job, Jesus, and later Paul. But what Isaiah is telling us is that the enemy will not and cannot prevail, so we have no reason to live in fear of the oppressors of our day by forgetting the Lord our Maker. Now, three very simplistic points this morning, but worthy reminders. And the first is this reminder of the benefits and blessings of knowing God. Listen this morning, are you ready? Nothing can ever happen to us that God can't handle. Nothing can ever happen to us that God can't handle. Now, we've said this in every possible way down through our almost 21 years of being a church family, but I believe there is a specificity in its application for the time in which we now live. And we would find this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 5, where Paul reminds the church at Thessaloniki concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say what? Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Now listen, I think we all recognize, because of the things we watch happening around the world, our world, in particular, our young people, are tired of war. They are tired of injustice, whether it's real or imagined. 
People want someone to take control of their lives so they don't have to think and they can just live out their lives and someone else provides for them. They want peace. They want safety. They want it at any expense and they don't care who brings it. And to many, Christians are the one who are hindering the peace and safety the world so desires and the utopian society necessary to bring it about. Now listen, it is the global mentality before the time of destruction. But listen, we are not of the night. We are not of the darkness. We are God's people and we are destined to make a difference in this world. No matter what the world does, no matter how the world turns on the church, no matter how the devil personally attacks us, no matter how strongly the world denies God's existence, nothing can come our way that God can't handle. Now, David reminds Israel of their history. And we would do well to remember ours. God is able. God is faithful. God has no equal. His chariots are 20,000 and thousands times thousands, a number unheard of in the time of David, but one we could well understand its implications and meaning today. God is on the throne. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is the almighty. And God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? Amen. Now, let's look at a second look, that is, at verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Now, Paul's quote of this passage in Ephesians assures us that the inference here is messianic. David is pointing forward to Jesus Christ and even as we look back on it now historically, it was prophetic at the time of its writing. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, 7 to 10, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill, the Greek word there is play root, means to fulfill all things. Now, the gifts given us according to Christ's gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the purpose of equipping the body of Christ for the work of ministry, a ministry in which every part does its share. That's where you say, Amen. Now, I find it interesting that there is so much talk in the church today about works and that any mention of them is labeled as an effort to put people under the Mosaic law or simply a works righteousness paradigm and nothing could be further from the truth. And this is an area I think we need a mental reboot concerning the benefits and blessings of our salvation. Again, simplistic point needs to be said. You'll get it. Now we have to do it. Amen. You ready? Here we go. We don't have to serve God. We get to serve God. We don't have to serve God. We get to serve God. Now, God gave you a free will, right? Have you ever known the right thing to do and not done it? Proves you have free will. It's true for all of us. 
So listen, we don't need to put ourselves under some type of legalistic bond or bondage. We don't have to serve God. We can make the decision every single day not to do so. But we get to serve God. It's an honor to serve God. It's a blessing to serve God. And it's one of the benefits of being born again. Now consider what David foresees here in verse 18. He's pointing forward to the death of Christ. His conquest even over death via Christ's resurrection and ascension. He implies the then sending of the Holy Spirit. And all this begins by reconciling us to God through justification by faith, not of works, lest anyone could boast about having deserved what Christ has done for them. I am thankful that God has not given me what I deserve. You're thankful that I have it or you're thankful that you have it? We should all be thankful for that. Amen. Now, in light of all we just mentioned, how can anybody arrive at the conclusion that I don't have to serve God to be a Christian? How can anybody say I don't have to go to church to be a Christian? Shouldn't the right response be God gave gifts to the church in the form of people who equip us for the work of ministry? And how can I not serve him with all my heart, soul, mind and strength in light of all that he's done for me? Doesn't that make sense? We need to turn our thinking around. We don't have to serve God. We get to serve God. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 to 10, Paul said, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They're strange bedfellows, affliction and joy. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven. He's coming again. Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. Now, are you ready for this? It's coming anyway, so just say yeah. Listen, how is it that we easily serve things that can do nothing for us eternally, yet we struggle to find time to serve the God who has done all things and given us all things freely? That's something that we all battle with. And Paul commends the church at Thessaloniki from having turned from idols to serve the true and living God as they wait for his son from heaven, looking forward to when Jesus comes to deliver us from the wrath that is coming upon the whole world. Now, among the many benefits and blessings of our salvation is the privilege and high honor of serving God. And I love how Paul puts it in the oft-quoted verses we use here from Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I beseech you or I plead with you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your, what are the next two words? Reasonable. Reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect or complete will of God. Now, the word service here could also be translated as divine service. It could also be translated as an act of worship. And in light of all that he has done for us, having paid for our sins in his own blood, after stepping down from the majesty he shared with the Father 
on high to dwell in a human body so he could die a sinner's death, so we could have eternal life. Isn't it reasonable to serve him? Isn't it just a reasonable reaction to serve him? Is it law to serve him? Is it works righteousness to serve him? Or is it worship to serve him? Especially in light of the fact that the Lord frees captives of sin, even from among the rebellious. Somebody say amen to that. Now, Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and praise you on earth. Glorify who? Where? In heaven. Listen, I'm afraid there are some teachers today who are doing a grave disservice to the body of Christ by denying the fact that those whom Jesus saves, he also transformed. Some almost act like if you feel an unction to serve God, you don't understand what it means to be saved by grace. Listen, grace is going to activate service to God. It isn't going to cause us to simply slip into heaven uh, inactive and indifferent to what's going on in our world. And the argument that is made today that all you have to do is believe in the sense of cognitive acceptance is easily dismissed by the fact that anything you truly believe with all of your heart, soul, and mind is going to impact how you behave. It's going to impact your actions. Think about it. If you believe when the light is green for you, it's red for the other direction, how is that going to influence your behavior? You're going to drive right through the signal, correct? Of course, unless you're on your phone texting at a green light, which happens all the time, apparently. Now, if you don't believe that that's true, you're still going to act on your belief by stopping at a green light, waiting for a safe crossing across the intersection. And either way, what you believe impacts how you behave. Now, in light of all that God has done for us, the precious gift of his son given on our behalf, is it not reasonable to serve him? And bring him glory. We don't have to. We get to. And he's beyond worthy of any sacrifices we make in life in order to do so. Amen. Now, let's look at our PowerPoint verse, which is 19, and add 20 to it. We'll wrap up our time. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Now, the word translated as daily is kind of interesting. It can mean the hot part of the day, which reminds us when the heat is on, God is faithful to us, and his benefits and blessings of knowing him stand fast, even in the heated moments of life. It can mean from one day to the next. It can mean continually. And the word translated as loads is interesting as well, as it can mean to impose a burden or it can mean to carry a burden. Now, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is what? Easy and my burden is light. And from this we can understand the context of what David wrote is not being God imposing burdens on us, but rather God carrying our burdens for us. 
We also need to remember that the Hebrew word for salvation means exactly what we think it means. It means to save the soul, but it also means deliverance. It can also rightfully be translated as prosperity or even victory. And thus a good reminder from Psalm 103, 1 to 6 is that we can bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his what? Benefits. Here's a few. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are what? Oppressed. It seems strange that we would need an encouragement or exhortation to remember the benefits and blessings of knowing the Lord, but it's true. We need such a reminder. And we need these reminders because life often tries to crowd out or change our perspective on who God is and the blessings and benefits of being saved by overshadowing them with life pains and problems. Now... I don't recall ever being in the hospital for seven days, but I was in the hospital for seven days a week ago. And there were times I thought, am I going to get better? There were times I thought, am I ever going to come out of this? These just continuing fevers. And I have to say, there was a doctor that came in to see me and he said, I'm the head of the intensive care unit. And your doctor wanted me to come see you because she's worried about you. Well, then I started to worry about me when the head of ICU came in to see me. But listen, what I reminded myself of is that nothing can happen in my life that God can't handle. And listen, I will not, you will not be cut short of a single millisecond that God has ordained for you to live. No matter what the devil tries to throw at us, no matter the height of your fever, no matter the depth of your illness or your despair or whatever, God has the power to deliver and to him belongs escape from death. Not that I was dying, but I kind of felt like it. Now, remember our word blessed from verse 19 means an act of adoration. So we could well say and should say, I'm going to live my life in adoration to God for the benefits and blessings of knowing him that are loaded upon me daily. And the most significant among them all is that through the one who led captivity captive and gave gifts to men, we have escaped the second death because of him. Now, here's our last consideration, and it's a bit more complex than our previous two But it's a good reminder, timely for us all in this time or any other. And listen, here's our final and concluding point for this Psalm 68 Sunday morning. Listen this morning. The greatest proof of God's love is Christ's death on the cross, not positive life experiences. The greatest proof of God's love is Christ's death on the cross, not positive life experiences. Listen, I can't imagine living in a world such as ours with an uncertainty about the afterlife. 
I can't imagine facing the things happening in our world, the unrest all over the world, the ethnic tensions, the cosmological events, the raging wars and rumors of wars, all predicted by the Bible. But the fact is, I find great comfort that either when I die or preferably go in the group plan, I'm going to be with the Lord. That's why Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in, in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as I've said in the past, I love how Paul personalizes the work of Christ on the cross on his behalf. Now, remember the background of our chapter. Things hadn't gone so well for Israel. The ark had been captured. David's wife mocked him for dancing before the Lord. But this was not a time for a song of defeat. It was time for an anthem of victory, just like today. And I want to remind you again that this life is not all there is. And the hard stuff will soon be replaced by eternal fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, according to Psalm 1611. And Paul says in Philippians 1, 19 to 26, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified where? In my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But... If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Now remember, Paul had talked about being caught up into the highest of the heavens, the heavenly realm, the domain of the angels, and God himself. When he saw things that he said it wouldn't be fitting to try and use human descriptive terms and phrases to describe them. So he had seen the heavenly scene, and his conclusion was, I'd rather be there than here on earth. But... God wasn't done with him yet. He had more to do for the Lord's namesake and glory. And he was going to remain and continue is what the Lord spoke to his heart by the spirit of Christ Jesus. And listen, among the epistles that Paul had written, one of, if not the most encouraging epistle of them all, is the letter to the Philippians. And may I draw your attention to the fact that Paul wrote it under a two-year house arrest. In Rome. And here he is encouraging other people. Listen this morning, saints. Your life may feel like a string of trials and tribulations without any respite in between. And I have to say, one of my takeaways from my uh, unwelcome hospital stay was just uh, to encounter God just brought Christians to me, nurses and doctors and Uh, One of my doctors came in and uh, he had his uh, physician's assistant with him. And uh, he said, you're a pastor, huh? I said, yeah. What are you going to do about it? No, I didn't say that. (laughs) 
He said, what denomination? I said, Calvary Chapel. And uh, he turned around and walked away. Obviously, he didn't like my answer. I don't know why. But then the other doctor, who was a bit, I don't know, blustery, wasn't, the bedside manner was a little weak. Let me just put it like that. He said, you know, I always wanted to meet Chuck Smith. My wife went to high school there. And we have been a part of Calvary Chapels over the years. And he said, my wife and I are going to be praying for you. I'll take it. I'll take it. I had so many wonderful caregivers and interesting, you know, I I think we all fight sometimes uh, looking at particular elements of the world and people around the world and and see them as uh, the, the source of problems in our world. But listen, God sent me two Jewish doctors. He sent me a Pakistani doctor. He sent me an Iranian doctor. And he sent me an Italian doctor so I could have a global experience during my time (laughs) in the hospital. And they were wonderful, and they cared so greatly for me. And there was one particular nurse uh, who I enjoyed. uh, Her two shifts where she was assigned to my uh, room. Uh, Her name was Heidi, and uh, she was uh, a PK. Her dad was a Lutheran pastor uh, growing up. And we began to talk and converse about the Lord. And I told her, you know, I've often told the church, sometimes I realize I'm not under Moses' law, but I sure feel like I'm under Murphy's. (laughs) And I think we've all had those seasons. And God is faithful to bring us the things that we need, to bring us those who will encourage us. A doctor met for the first time who will commit to pray for you along with his wife, doctors who care and are concerned about your well-being, who are from cultures from around the world, nurses who uh, want to make sure that you are being dealt with in a proper manner and have such a love and concern for their patients that they spend hours caring and watching over you. Listen, this is God doing all of this. This is God orchestrating events. And maybe you're feeling like I have felt in time past. I, Mike asked me the other day, how you doing? And, and in just a moment, I said, Mike, I got to be honest. I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just want to feel good. Just want to be healthy. I'm tired of taking antibiotics. I'm tired of all this stuff. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here this morning? I'm tired of things not being better than they have been over these past few years. But you know what? There's one thing that changes my perspective whenever I think about it, and it's that right there. God's love for me and you isn't measured by positive life experiences. Life often isn't positive. Life is hard. Sometimes it's mean and brutal. But if you want to know the depth of God's love, all you need to do is look to the cross of Christ. That's where we see the proof of his love. Listen, he never promised a perfect life in an imperfect world. He never said things are going to be easy, nor did he ever say the world would love us because we love him. And listen, the cross of Christ answers all the how could a God of love allow this or that questions that are thrown out in our world today. The real question is, why would a God of love save a rebellious people like us? Because he is a God of love. 
because he has demonstrated his love on the cross of Christ. He never promised a perfect life in a fallen world, but what he did promise is that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He promised that he hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. He promised that he would come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, we may be also. He promised a helper would come and come alongside us to comfort us and aid us in the many afflictions of life. He promised to complete the work that he began in us until the day of Jesus Christ. And he promised there are rewards awaiting us in heaven. And listen... All of this is assured by one thing. He delivers from death. He has delivered us from the second death. We've talked about it, pointed to it, alluded to it. And here it is in black and white, so to speak, or red and white, I should say. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that, while we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us much more than, listen, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Listen, the benefits and blessings of knowing God are not only innumerable, they are immeasurable. And when hard times come, his love cannot be called into question because it has been undeniably demonstrated by dying for us while we were yet sinners that we might be reconciled to God with the promise of someday living in immortal incorruptibility forever and ever. Somebody say, Amen. And Father, we are grateful for our visit to our word and verse for this month. And we thank you, Lord, that you do all things well. And Lord, we thank you that you included the words of men like Peter, the history of men like Job, the men like David and Abraham, that we can look to your book and see that you're not looking for perfect people. You're looking for people to perfect, to bring to the fullness of your salvation. We thank you that we have a promise of deliverance from wrath to come. We thank you that to you, the Lord, alone belong escapes from death. So, Lord, when life creeps in and the problems and pains and trials and tribulations seem to be linked one right behind the other. May we not look to our circumstances, but may we look to the cross as a remembrance of your love for us. We thank you for our time together in your word. Lord, I thank you for these praying people, these dear saints who have been praying for me and those uh, in their own lives who are racked with affliction and troubles and trials. We thank you that you are a God who answers prayer. You are not indifferent. Your ear is not heavy. Your arm is not short that you can't reach us. So we thank you for these immutable truths that we found in your word today. Help us to go out and live like they're true, just as they were on the day they were written. We give you thanks. We give you honor. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.